Hello everyone, I'm Kate Braug and this is The Pivotal Moment. Together we will talk to 100 of the most inspiring and powerful women entrepreneurs in New York. They will tell us about what it takes to set up your own company, how to be the architect of your own career, and how they are reshaping the business world. I'm an entrepreneur myself and I'm looking forward to hearing their stories along with you. Katie Spots is an endurance athlete, charitable ambassador, author, and world record holder. The list of accomplishments to her name is long and includes five Ironman triathlons, cycling across the country, a 325-mile river swim, running 100 miles non-stop in under 20 hours, and a solo row across the Atlantic Ocean. Katie became the youngest and only American to row solo across the Atlantic Ocean in 2010 and the first person to have swum the entire length of the Allegheny River in New York State and Pennsylvania. More than $150,000 was raised for clean water projects with that row. To date, more than 43,000 people have gained access to clean water through her challenges and events. Katie tells her story in her poignant book, Just Keep Rowing, and her film, Running Home. She has been featured in the New York Times, CBS Morning News, CBS Evening News, Anderson Cooper 360, Sports Illustrated, Glamour Magazine, The Joe Rogan Experience, and more. Katie is currently a Lieutenant Junior Grade in the U.S. Coast Guard and was recently named the Elite Female Athlete of the Year. Katie, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh yeah, thanks so much for having me. So first of all, I want to start at the beginning. You know, what was your childhood like? Were you always a busy kid? Were you an athlete? Um, what led you to these extraordinary Yeah, adventures? so growing up, I did all the team sports. If there was a ball and a court and a field, I tried it. I tried basketball, baseball, soccer, um, tennis, and I was very much physically there, but mentally, I, I wasn't really, you know, very competitive and in baseball, I would be picking dandelions and soccer. I'd always be confused <laughs> on what side of the court I was supposed or field I was supposed to be on. And so I, by middle school and high school, you know, if you don't have that competitive drive, it's you, you're on the bench. And so when you sit on the bench for long enough, you start to believe it's because you belong there. And so I kind of wrote it off as, oh, I guess I'm just not athletic. And so I'll focus my energies and elsewhere. And so it was my senior year of high school. I needed to take one more gym class to get my high school diploma. I was dragging my feet. I was trying to petition, get a doctor's note, write uh, a, you know, a couple pages about why physical fitness matters. And so I was looking for any out. And I, when I was forced didn't want to do. Um, I looked for the easiest A. The I wanted to find the class that was the easiest and put in the least amount of effort. And so I found a running walking class and um, I was just bored of walking. And one day with no you know pressure from coaches or letting down teammates, I, I set my own little personal goal of trying to run one mile straight. And I, um, I'd never done that before. And it was really out of sheer boredom of walking lap after lap and being forced to be somewhere I didn't want to be. And so it was, you know, that one mile that really changed the whole um, path for me. And I know some people say just one mile to describe a one mile run, but that was just enough for me to 
um, redefine possible because I never thought it was possible to run one mile. And so I just started to wonder what are all the things that I'm telling myself, all these stories that I'm making up in my head of what's possible and what's not. And so um, one mile turned into two, two mile to three. And really with that baby progression, it, it, I wouldn't have rode across the Atlantic. I wouldn't have run a hundred miles. I wouldn't have cycled across America. I wouldn't have done any of these bigger challenges without that first mile. So it all started there. And um, curiosity is probably one of my strongest um, motivators. And so I'm always curious about what is truly possible and um, what it, what is the limit. And what's the longest you've ever run? Last year, I did an, another like world record. And so that one was um, there's two longest runs. One is one and one go. I've done about 140 miles and it took about 30 hours. And then last year um, attempted and set a Guinness world record for the most consecutive ultra marathon. So that was running 11 ultras in 11 days to raise funds for 11 clean water projects in Uganda. So that was, wow. yeah, about five hours of running every day across the state of Ohio. And so you went from running that first one mile to rowing across the Atlantic Ocean uh, when you were 19. And that was the first um, adventure you really became quite well known for. I would like to walk through that experience together because that was a 2,400 or like 2,500 mile row, right? And for people who still think in kilometers like I do, <laughs> that's a almost a 4,000 kilometer row. How did you come up with that? So I was living in Australia and I was going to school there. And it was after I did my first ultra marathon. So it was a hundred K run. And, you know, every time I do these adventures, there's this kind of honeymoon or this awakening phase of like, wow, I never thought I could do that. And I was wrong. What, what else is possible? And so I was on a bus chatting with some guys sitting next to me. We get on the topic of endurance challenges. And I, at that point, being a teenager, thinking I knew everything, I, I kind of was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know people cycle around the world. I know people do all these challenges. But then he had mentioned that his friend had just done it, um, this, 50, this woman with her 55-year-old mother. And I was... <laughs> I mean, what? yeah, really? exactly. And I mean, <laughs> oh it was so um, far beyond anything I had heard about. And I mean, you do a marathon and you go back to your house and you take your shower and you get your ice bath, you get your massage, you have your nice meal. And it was just so um, beyond everyday life. And and I, I went home. I didn't believe him at first. I was like, yeah, right. And so I went went on Google and found out that this is really a thing and people had really done this. And it just turned into this thing where late at night, you know, Googling, reading, keep on reading, keep on researching. Then that turned into emailing other people who had done it. Then it turned into imagining what it would be like. And I, you know, half of the people who have who attempted that, that row failed. And so and the last American woman who did it, uh, she was an Olympic rower and it, and she failed. And so it was this thing where wow. 
I was. Why? Do you know why they failed? So she Is did it... the North. She survived. So and so it okay. took her three tries <laughs> to oh make God. it. But she uh, she hit bad weather, and so her route was a little bit different. And so by no means, I, I don't share that to say that I'm a better rower. I definitely am not a better rower than Olympic rower. Um, but it, it's really, you know, you're in the hands of the ocean. And so she, her route was known to be more rough to go from the US to the UK. And so once she switched her route, um, she was able to make it as well. So, I mean, I didn't even ask her for advice because I didn't know how to row when I decided to row across the Atlantic, but... <laughs> She'd probably yeah, be like, Pfft. yeah, you're never going to make it, girl. And I mean, I did have loads of doubt. And and so at that point, it was almost something that I didn't share as much because I knew that I would have to kind of reassure everyone else that it was going to be OK, knowing that I didn't know if it was going to be OK. So that was just a very heavy burden. So I yeah, I um I know it was a huge leap of faith, but I knew, you know, in situations, sometimes there is no easy way out. And and you may think, oh, well, just don't row across the Atlantic. That's the easy way out. But for me, I think that would be way more difficult because I'd be left with this lingering feeling of what if and this heavy burden and, um, you know, just plagued with unfulfilled potential. And um even though the risks were there i knew that if i didn't row the atlantic i would have spent the rest of my life wondering why i didn't and um once you kind of you know pave that way of stuffing down your dreams and your goals it becomes habit anything you do can become habit and i mean i i thought that as well that if i don't do this then it will just be a slope of continuing to ignore the callings and um you know, even if I definitely didn't feel like the right person for the job, I knew that the desire, the interest, the curiosity was all there. And so um, it, it wasn't intended to be a solo row, but I tried to talk friends into it and um, it's uh, not many people want to do it. And so I, no, I, I imagine. think, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is in some ways more intimate than a marriage. I mean, you're living on top of another person at your worst and, you know, sleep deprived and just cranky. And so I think it protected relationships for me to not be <laughs> around people when I'm just a zombie. So, yeah, it, it worked out doing it solo. But I, I mean, I didn't know it would be a world record until after you know after doing the research but originally it was just i i just got to see what this ocean crossing is all about and i i want to i i don't know i think there's something really cool about you know in life we do have our exit we have our exit in work or relationships and it's easy to quit and so i think what was another draw for me is even if I wanted to quit and I did want to quit sometimes it would have, it, it, it was easier to keep going in some ways. And it was kind of a situation where the only option you have would be to overcome. And even if I did, you know, call to be rescued, it took, it could take two days. And by the time they arrived, I probably would have changed my mind. I have a bunch of follow-up questions already. 
because you mentioned earlier that you found it difficult to share with people that you were planning to row the Atlantic Ocean. What advice would you give to people who would like to undertake an endurance challenge or adventure comparable to the ones that you did, but are afraid to tell their friends and family because they expect that some of them won't believe that they can do it or will express the fact that they don't think they can do it? Yeah, I mean, here's the truth that we all have callings that may seem so, you know, far fetched because that's not your calling. And so, a lot of times when people put their doubts on you, they're really, um, it's a mirror of what they believe about themselves. And um, typically doubters, it has much more to do with them than it does for you. I mean, it could be a way for um, them to feel better about doing nothing at all. So um, I, I, I do think, you know, for me, it was important to, to hear that, like, hear alternative viewpoints and um, look at things in a different way, especially because I was so young when I set off on that. And um, I don't know, I think there's something to be said that your brain like is actually developed by 25. So I, I think it, it is, especially at that age to, to um, be willing to hear people out. But at the end of the day, you have to live with yourself and your decisions no one else does and um no matter what you do uh there will be that doubt so you might as well just do the thing that you feel like doing and i mean even for my row um it was all about raising money for clean water and yet still people will say things about that like oh well, why aren't you helping in this country why aren't you helping in here why why? I just say, well, why aren't you? I'm focusing here. Why don't you take that country? And so, I mean, right. I think that 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 absolutely has to do more with their doubts, insecurities, fears, and just feeling more justified that that they aren't necessarily living their call or living their best life. So, right, that makes sense. Um, to go back to your vote, how long did it take you in total? Uh, so it was two and a half months, seventy days and i anticipated it would be about 70 to 100 days and even with a 400 mile detour um, i ended up two countries west of the original plan um, it still ended up being 70 days and wow. yeah no That's follow incredible. boat or helicopter or anything like that so it was truly incredible so, and what what is the worst thing that would have been able to happen oh yeah i mean i could have died for i my boat was self-writing but i mean when i said goodbye to my parents and family at the airport we looked at each other and with tears in our eyes thinking like okay this might be the last hug this might be the last time we're together and so people do and so that's why i did spend two years preparing two years i mean it was almost like learning to go into space and so um i took it very seriously and i think that was probably the hardest part of the journey doing something that you know that that could put your life on the line and that's a heavy thing i mean if someone's going to war or someone has um a cancer diagnosis or i mean those are I, I, it's very different in that i am making the choice and i'm choosing willingly to put myself in potentially harm's way but 
I, I just knew that there was a call and there was a purpose for me to be there that I couldn't deny. So logically, I mean, I do find myself to be pretty logical. And, and so it was, it was really a lot of reflection to be able to justify doing something that is dangerous. But um, yeah, I mean, I was always tethered to the boat. I was always like strapped in. I made sure the hatches were closed because it was self-writing, but if the hatches are open, it's not going to be, it's just going to fill the cabins with water. So I was pretty careful about that. But um, I mean, I did have 25 to 30 foot waves and um, to me, <laughs> but I, I, I love, I love that kind of stuff. I mean, I feel like there's so much energy and power in nature and to have that right up front. And so that, you know, my, my interest in joining the military and the Coast Guard is, was to be a rescue swimmer. So that kind of stuff does excite me and um, was something I was kind of looking forward to and um, kind of grew up as a kid, you know, if there were storms, we'd go out on the porch and watch them. So I, that was one thing that I, I did, you know, yeah, I liked I liked all that. How big would a wave need to be to flip you over? Um, I don't know for sure, but I mean, I would assume that if they were bigger than my boat, which they were at times. So, um, but yeah, that's that is exactly what makes this boat different than you know you can't go to dick's sporting goods and get one of these boats they're very <laughs> very custom and so um the self-writing capability i mean i had three safety belts i could strap myself in there were um padding all along the cabin walls in case to prevent like concussions and then i had ballast water all along the bottom of the boat and so that with the design of the actual shape of the boat, those are all things that helped so that if it flipped, it would flip back over again. So you were alone for 70 days. I interviewed Colonel Meryl Tengestal a couple of weeks ago, and she was the first African-American woman to fly the U-2 aircraft, which is a reconnaissance spy plane operated by the Air Force. And those missions would take up to 12 hours, and it would just be her flying at 70,000 feet at the very edge of space inside a pressurized suit inside the U-2. And during the interview, we discussed what made her so comfortable in our own skin to be able to do that. But we also discussed the difficult parts of those missions. You were in a rowing boat in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean for 70 days. What was it like to be alone for such a long period of time? And what allowed you to get through that? Yeah, so... I'd say the first thing is having healthy relationships. That is what makes it easier and better to spend time alone because you know that that time spent alone is more in solitude, not in, um, you know, deprivation or loneliness. And so knowing that even if it was thousands of miles away, that I still had friends and family that um, care for me and, I'm, you know, were with each other in spirit, it, it, it prevents, I feel like it prevented me from looking at that time alone as something that was, you know, sad. And so I, before the journey, I mean, the longest I had spent alone would be maybe 24 hours, 48 hours, if there was a snowstorm and you couldn't get out, get out 
until the roads were cleared. Like that's probably snow days are probably the longest time I've spent alone. And so to go from a couple of days to a couple months was, was huge. And so I did work with a sports psychologist. I did do meditation retreats that um, were 10 days long. And so there would be 12 hours of meditating a day, no reading, no writing. Um, that was probably the hardest reading and writing, no eye contact. And so I, I just, I think the row really showed that we are so adaptable. Um, we also are designed to be in communities. So I did have things like podcasts and comedians and audiobooks so that I still, and hmm. my mom actually wrote a hundred letters and every day I opened up uh. a letter from home. And so there are tons of little things for the fundraising. Um, if someone donated $30, they could get their little picture on the side of the boat. And so, um, yeah. And, and then I am an introvert, uh, definitely an introvert. And that is where I get my energy from. So I think in some ways I was more in my element and in my comfort zone on the ocean than I was with like the whirlwind of everything that happened after, um, which was amazing for the cause. And we wouldn't have reached those fundraising goals without that. So that was really helpful. Um, but yeah, I, I do, I'm very much an introvert. And so I, I actually like and enjoy that space. And um, there was a reassurance of like, oh, wow, we can actually do this and not go completely insane from, because I mean, the worst <laughs> form of punishment is solitary confinement. It's not being around right. people. So it's almost. And you did that voluntarily. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, Excellent. <laughs> yeah, I, I did have a satellite phone. It was $1.50 a minute. I used it for emergencies. Um, but then I did have a laptop, like a Panasonic Toughbook, like what police police officers would use. And so it's very heavy duty and um, durable. So I did have some ways of maintaining those relationships. But yeah, I could see if I didn't have strong relationships, how much harder that would have been to kind of get in your head about like, I'm the only one here. And like, no, I have a lot of people rooting for me. So I mean, just I did have Twitter and was posting things and having schools follow along. Oh, great. So they were keeping me accountable and they were making me feel less alone out there. So it's also it's interesting to hear how well prepared you were with the sports psychologist, with, you know, going on meditation retreats. How important is preparation for you? Oh, gosh. I mean, it's a big question, but <laughs> there's no way I would have got to the start line to be able to do that. And so I mean, I really feel like the row was the icing on the cake of the two years of preparation. And two years? You prepped for I two did. years? Yeah. So wow. it was my senior year of uh, college. So I was still doing classes and stuff like that. But it the it started, I'd actually started, um, I had, I was studying um, business and we had a small business um you know, entrepreneurship course. And so I used this as it and I made a business plan. And, and so I, I did do that as a school project too. So I think that helps. I mean, that's any, any, any campaign that I start, I always start with some kind of plan. Um, 
and write it all out and have mentors or people that whose opinions I, I value and who might have some more insight to look it over and see if I'm missing anything. And I mean, of course, business, like any kind of plans, things change, but um, yeah, I mean, every event, I, you wouldn't, you would not be able to start without that kind of planning. And so, um, yes, you have to be physically fit, but if you're the most fit person in the world without a rowboat, without your running shoes, like an Olympic roller, (laughs) what, what does it matter? So I did prioritize more of the logistics and um yeah mm. than than the physical stuff and what was the most surprising thing you saw along the way um so i was so focused on the equipment and the food and the sponsors and that kind of thing that i didn't really research what animals and what marine wildlife i would see and so i at night Um, It's not uncommon for endurance athletes to hallucinate, especially if they're not sleeping well, which I wasn't. So I saw things glowing in the water and I just remember being like, I'm not going to tell anyone I see this because they're going to be like, she needs help. (laughs) Um, But I found out that that there's a lot of phosphorescence out there. And so um, glowing plankton was probably the coolest thing. And just so the way... It works as it's activated by movement. So when every time I put my oar in the water, anytime there were waves crashing against the side of my boat, every even if I put my hand in the water and just splashed it, you would see what looked like almost like sparkle. And even with the waves, if you could see it kind of on the top, wherever there was movement. Um, and so, yeah, that was really magical. And it just floats. It just floats in the ocean. Um, so it's it's like a plankton that, yeah. I mean, any it's just it's out there and it, it's activated. <laughs> the the glowing of it is activated by movement. And um, when you try and take it out of the water, does it still is it, it still would bright? Come, so there's like little scuppers for water to come out. So it, I could see it sometimes when it would come into my boat, but um, yeah. I, it was really just kind of splashing my hand in the water versus like holding it. But they did have man wars and they had, you know, other things that were glowing that you wouldn't want to pick up too. So, um, but I saw a lot. I saw, you know, um, dolphins. I had pods of dolphins surround my boat. I had um, sea turtles and albatross that would land on my boat. So um, that's another thing that, reason not to feel super lonely is because I did have all these kind of visitors under and around my boat. It's funny though that you didn't research that because that would be the first thing I would research (laughs) especially the shark (laughs) shark topic. Um, Did you see sharks? I did yeah again though like I've done the shark cage dive in South Africa. Oh you have? No I've done scuba diving in Australia and there's like a reef shark and they're like oh it's not not a bad shark so like I don't know I get excited about that I mean not so excited that I'm going to be dumb about it like you know I, right. I just kind of stopped rowing and waited a few minutes and then continued on but I think that's I think it's kind of cool to be that close to an animal that powerful it's very cool it's very cool how did you did you like uh going into a shark cage uh yeah it's something I've been thinking about doing but I'm not quite sure yeah I mean 
I, I did, I read a lot about the company that does it because I know there's probably a ton of operators and just seeing if anything gone wrong in the past. And, <laughs> but I don't know. I think, I mean, even being in the military, um, there's something to be said about when you're in a high stress environment, there could be kind of a sense of calm because you can't, you're 100% focused on that thing. And so in a weird way, I felt like it was almost calming because of like, mm. you know, you just have to be very aware of you yourself and what's going on. Um, it was a, it was a windy day. So there was, it was, you know, you're above the water, you're below the water, you're above the water. And so, I mean, I'm sure if you had several days there, just trying to get a day that wasn't so windy so that you're more submerged the whole time. More submerged. Yeah. Yeah, I can I can I kind of would equate that to the first time I went skydiving and that was I felt very calm yeah. all of a yeah. sudden. Like there was this sense of I was, you know, terrified I was going to die and then all of a sudden that was all gone. And it was the best feeling. So one of the other things you've done <laughs> is you were the first person to swim the entire length of the Allegheny River, uh, which is a 325-mile river that runs in western Pennsylvania, New York. What are the three things you learned from that experience? Um, I mean, with all endurance challenges, it's that we're more capable than we think, um, that you don't need to necessarily... I mean, a big part of all these endurance challenges are I don't always ask people about it because you can have these authentic experiences. Sometimes you don't need to research. Sometimes you don't need to ask everyone else who's done it. And because that swim was something that no one else had done, um, you, I mean, it kind of, I guess it was just another reminder that you can do things without reading the review. You can do things without asking other people and comparing your experience to others. And so um, you can do more than you think. You can do things without asking everyone else. And um, I mean, <laughs> I think with a lot of these endurance challenges, there's always injury, you know, and, and especially with running that's the assumption that like, oh, you're just going to destroy your body. But I think with swimming, it's very much your body can really handle a, a lot of it. And it's um, because it's so low impact. Um, but I, I, I do think that the swim had challenges unique to any of the other endurance challenges and that in rowing and running and cycling, you can, you know, use one earbud and you can listen to music, you can listen, to, you can see cool things, you could chat with friends. And for that swim, it was six to eight hours of looking into the water. So it was, it was probably the more mentally challenging um, endurance feat, just because it was kind of, it could be boring. Um, but right. you just, I think, I, the quicker I can kind of get into a flow state. And for me, that's this space where I don't care how far I went or how far I have to go and more present. And so swimming, you can get in that space 
um, as well. But how do you get from, because that boring state, that's interesting, because a lot of people say, I don't run because it's boring, right? I hear that a lot around me. It's like, um, it's just, it's very one-sided. You just run and what are you going to do? How do you stop something from being boring, like an endurance challenge like that? Uh, I mean, I definitely appreciate all forms of endurance. And so my last endurance challenge was rollerblading. And so I I think that's the beauty. Nice. <laughs> yeah. My friend and I rollerbladed from Key Largo to Key West um, doing like an ultra. How long is that? It's about 120 miles. So we did an ultra marathon oh every God. day. Wow. It's a, it's, I mean, I don't know. I've never been a bad, in a bad mood rollerblading. So I, I think because there's so much variety in life, there's really no reason to be bored with fitness because, um, yeah, even if you're not into endurance, I mean, there's obstacle course races and dancing and yoga and, um, there's really so much, so many cool ways to, you know, use your body and, um, be in touch with your body and also witness how capable it can be. So I, I definitely do feel bored. I, I, I think because curiosity is something that is a driver, I, you know, in an ultra marathon, the first marathon is boring to me because it's like, I know I can already do it. I want to get to the part where it's new. And so, um, yeah, I mean, constantly pushing your limits i think is really exciting and keeps things interesting um going to new places i know a lot of people will go to races and travel and make it you know make it a vacation kind of thing where they you know get motivated to go to this race and then spend the week there to travel and and kind of pair it with um doing something with friends or family I mean, there's so many groups now too that do these types of running and biking. And um, I think that's, I mean, it, it, it can be boring, but I think that's why groups are so popular because it does make things a lot more fun to be sharing that. Um, and then finding cool places to go. I mean, beaches or mountains and there's trails everywhere. And so I think being, you know, creative about where you're doing your fitness things is also helpful. And then in terms of music and audiobooks and do you create a certain playlist or do you alternate or because um I'm going to get to this in a, in a bit but I'm going to run my first marathon oh. <laughs> this November so I'm very excited about that but you know there are all kinds of things that I'm going to ask you all about. Yeah, um, that's exciting. Part of it yeah, for me, for me, it is for you. It's like old news. But, you know, one of the things would be, do you create a playlist or do you alternate? Do you listen to audiobooks? I guess it's also a very personal thing. But how do you put that together? For me, it's all pretty upbeat, kind of like, I don't know, um, da- like electronic dance music kind of stuff, like or some kind of chill. I mean, I listen to Pandora and I have the ability to skip through and um, I do that. Another thing, especially for ultra marathons, and I know this may sound like terrible, but I listen to a metronome. You can find songs Ah. that go to the right cadence or you can have the metronome play over your music. But um, 
in ultramarathons, it's not necessarily your lungs. It's it, a lot of it is comfort. You have to be comfortable um, because that will wear you out. I mean, you just want all the focus to be on your muscles and not like chafing and not um, and and not muscle imbalances. So when I did like Ironman triathlons, a lot of my finisher pictures, one of my shoulders would be up and and I kind of put it together that um, I had been right leg dominant. So I would favor my right leg and most people do have a stronger side. So that meant that um, with the metronome you're supposed to do, I think it's 180 beats per minute. And um, you could practice to get up to there, but it it shortens your strides. I mean, I think a lot of people think these long, pretty strides are the way to run, but actually more you're more efficient if you're kind of keeping them shorter, especially in endurance events. But the metronome, if I didn't listen to it all the time and I didn't train myself to use both legs equally, it would mean that you know, my lower back, and then it would just keep working its way up and and cause imbalances. So endurance, I mean, really thinking about being comfortable. I mean, you could hold a lot of tension in your back, you could hold a lot of tension in your jaw, um, body position, making sure you're forward leaning. Um, But for for music, sometimes I do use it as a treat, like the first five miles is no music. And then the second five miles is music. I usually incorporate caffeine um, halfway through, which is, it could be, I mean, every race has different nutrition, but if you use that in your training um, runs, I I think it's best to wait until the halfway point because the first half you'll be running on adrenaline. You'll probably push yourself a little too hard because you have all the jitters. So if you wait until that halfway point, it does take a little bit for the, you know, maybe 20 minutes for the caffeine to kick in, but um, usually like gels or even a Pepsi. I mean, it, I, you just, you got to get the sugar when, and I know a lot of um, people will try to do alternative ways of fueling, but I think, you know, getting sugar, getting electrolytes and um, yeah, caffeine is another way to kind of give yourself a little boost because music running with people and your nutrition are kind of like the main ways that i can see that you can kind of keep yourself going and that metronome is that an app it is yeah so i i do have one that i can clip on and that's just if i'm running with a friend who also doesn't mind or running with it but um yeah i mean most running shops can give you a running analysis and see what shoes are, you know, good for you. I mean, it's called pronation, but basically, right. Yeah. And so that's another part. And I mean, your body's going to be telling you things. And I think it's just important to listen. Like if something is more sore, there's probably a solution for that. Um, And I mean, there's so many plans out there, but you really don't want to increase volume or intensity more than 10%. And you definitely want to incorporate um, recovery weeks. Um, You know, you don't gain strength in activity, you gain strength in recovering from the activity. So right, which is quite hard for a lot of people. (laughs) I'm terrible at recovery. I've always been (laughs) there. I mean, foam roll, there's active recovery. And there's, 
cycling and foam rolling. But yeah, I mean, I think that's the thing too, Um, burnout. I mean, if nothing else, forcing yourself to take recovery so your mind can stay fresh throughout the whole training cycle is, is important too. So, How do you feel if fatigue is a good kind of fatigue or a bad kind of fatigue? With pain, I think it's pretty, it's easier for me to feel, okay, this just, this is a wrong kind of pain. But with fatigue, it's a little bit more difficult because fatigue is also paired with your emotional state, right? So when when do you get to that point where you know this fatigue is because I really just don't want to, but I should just push myself or I should really just stay in bed today? <laughs> so one of the biggest indicators of you know, scientifically, are am I too tired for this workout is your heart rate. If your resting heart rate when you wake up is higher than it normally is, that means you you need recovery for sure. And so um, fatigue can also be a lot of related to nutrition and fueling. Um, so yeah, I, I think it was an an Olympic runner who talked about this, though, and it was like the rule of thirds that a third of the time you'll feel really great, a third of the time you'll feel okay, and a third of the time you won't feel the best. And the truth is, in a race, you might have the runner's high, and then you might, what quote unquote, bonk, and that's usually around mile 20. And so I think fatigue you know, injury is one thing, but fatigue, I think it is part of the training too, because you're, you're expanding your capabilities in your load. So um, yeah, it's, 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 it's also what people want to gain out of it. I mean, if you're looking to, which for your first marathon, completing should be the the main thing. But I, I think really, the most important time to push through the fatigue is your one long run a week. So usually for marathon training, you just do one long run on Saturday or Sunday. And that's kind of the most important part of the whole entire thing. And everything else is kind of bonus. So if there's a time and place to push through it, it's, it's that one long run. Um, But yeah, just kind of, being honest with yourself about do I have the stores do I have the nutrition to be able to take on this load as well and what piece of advice would you give to people who want to start endurance training or who want to run a marathon but feel that they don't have the confidence that they can do it um well I mean the first thing is just that there are a lot of people who have done marathons and have done all these things that were exactly where you are. I think most people who have never run a marathon don't necessarily think they can because it's, I mean, it's a huge unknown. And so I guess the first thing would just be reassurance that you are in the same place of people who have done marathons. I mean, and so it's normal, it's natural to have those doubts, but um you know there's truth and the truth is you don't know whether you can do something unless you try and um i think there's a lot of weight on this failure thing and i think um 
seeing failure as part, you know, not the opposite of success, but part of success is also really important because it's not always a matter of reaching the goal, but being further than you were yesterday. So, um, I mean, it could be really easy to compare yourself um, in life, but especially with running. So I think it's also really important to to celebrate all, you know, even the intention, celebrate the intention or of of wanting to step outside your comfort zone, celebrating your first run, celebrating the, you know, the longest run you've ever done and, and just taking time to honor what you're what you're doing and what you're stretching your body to do. So yeah, there's, there's a lot. For people who kind of yo-yo, so for people who come in really motivated, run every day, and then kind of slack off slowly, that's a form of kind of motiv- losing motivation. Yeah. Right? How, do, how do you keep motivated? Well, so I think with that in particular, it's easy to put the blame quote unquote, on the person, but I think sometimes the blame should be on the process. And usually that lack of motivation is in response to too much too soon. And so um, I would say that do whatever you need to do to avoid that from happening by going too easy by, you know, or, or, or erring on the side of being conservative and um and knowing that um there there are people who run marathons and there are moments that they don't feel like doing it and um you're giving up this kind of bigger sense of accomplishment by this very temporary thing and so even if you do feel like that just knowing that it's very temporary and to really reflect on on um, your why why are you doing it and and knowing your why because there will be moments that you know you're challenged to give up and so being prepared by writing it down and um, sharing it with others and um, but also being authentic to yourself if it's something you think you should do then you probably shouldn't do it but if it's it's you know something within you that um you feel it could unlock something or something you've always been curious about. I think it's great to honor that, but also respect that um, the world doesn't necessarily need people running more marathons. It needs people to authentically live the lives that they were called to, to live. And so I think that's more important than running a marathon, just showing up to live the life you were meant to. Um, and so if you could give advice to people who are just starting off or people who've already been running or enduring straining for a while, what are a couple of very specific items that you use that you would recommend to everyone? I think that there's a huge amount of value from writing down your goals, whether that's journaling them or getting a scroll of wrapping paper and mind mapping them, but being very clear on your why um i know for me that uh my bigger why is really to raise money for clean water so in moments that you feel like giving up those those things are going to be very important to just kind of refocus and um get your emotions to align with with your overall goals Hmm. and and things such as like a 
a runner's belt or, <laughs> you know, you mentioned the metronome app, um, things like that, um, like more practical gadgets. I, I, I definitely use like the wireless headphones. I love those. Um, let's see, what else do I wear? I usually get the running shorts with the pockets. So sometimes I'll stash some nutrition in there, but I kind of plan my running like the longer days where I'm back at the car every five miles. So I don't have to carry um, running belts and that kind of thing. I, I prefer just feeling really free and unrestricted. So if, if you do also like that feeling, just, yeah, making sure you have nutrition at your, in your car. Um, I also wear um, hats usually. I think that helps with just keeping cool and protecting your skin. And so. And like knee braces or? I do use compression stockings. Um, some people wear them during their runs. I wear them after my runs with recovery. Um, one other thing to be mindful of if you're doing like a marathon distance or longer is that your feet probably will swell. And so I go up a half, a half size or maybe even a full size just to prevent blisters and losing toenails. And so, um, yeah, but I mean, everyone has their own preferences. I think it's important to use training as the testing ground with nutrition and, um, I mean, I, I'm very, you know, regimented about my nutrition because I found what works for me. And, um, I, I'm a big fan of liquid based, so I don't usually do solids. And so it's 100% sports drinks and that helps me one stay, um, hydrated, but two, it, if you're digesting something that's taking, that's actually taking energy away from your muscle, using your muscles. So I want to use all the energy I possibly can on movement, not digestion. So that's why I I think liquid based kind of eliminates the need to, for your body to use energy to break down food. As an endurance athlete, how do you deal with menstruation? And I know it's a personal question, but it's something I'm really curious about, and I think other women are too. And it's kind of that thing that people still don't really, you know, talk about that much. But how do you deal with it? Um. So, did I hear it right? Menstruation. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. So I do have a birth control that I am less likely to have a period, and so that combined with doing a lot of athletic things, I actually don't have one. So I, yeah, I mean, I am single and I'm not um, looking to have kids anytime soon. So that means that I wouldn't need to necessarily stop all the endurance things. But for me to be able to have a period again, I would probably have to stop for a while and get off the birth control. But yeah, I actually prefer to be on this type of birth control just because I would prefer, especially like, I mean, rowing the Atlantic, I, I got LASIK eye surgery too, just, you know, one less thing to worry about. But um, yeah, that, that was very, I was very interested in how you dealt with that, because I think there's still quite a big, you know, mystery about how 
top athletes deal with their menstruation and how they kind of get through their hormonal phase of the month? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I even though I don't have periods, I'm aware that there are certain times of the month I still won't feel, you know, as peak as other times. But um, yeah, so my body's still going through things. It's uh, yeah. Still going through yeah. waves. <laughs> <laughs> now, I would like to talk about a topic that I'm very interested in, um, and that's your faith. You mentioned in an interview, if you don't have God, something else becomes it. And you've pursued many physically challenging experiences, but then you had an experience that was, in light of other things, quite small, but you went to an exhibition with your friend, and that's where your pursuit of faith kind of started, if I got it right. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so... It isn't uncommon for, you know, people who do these types of events to almost have a feeling of depression and sadness after their events are over. And um, yeah, so you reach your goal, right? But you lose your purpose and people need purpose more than they need goals. And so for my first few endurance challenges it would be you know what you see on paper wasn't matching what was really happening and so i went through a pretty low time about a year after the row and um i just felt like uh i mean i was spreading a message of hope and motivation but i didn't even have that kind of motivation myself i I it got to such a low where um, I got disenchanted about the clean water cause. I was thinking like, well, if people can have clean water and still feel this unfulfilled, what's the point? And so I, I definitely got in a huge funk and just questioning the purpose of everything. And it was around that time um, that my friend introduced me to faith. And it was, I mean, I was raised Catholic. And so I very much knew about rules and, um, and it, it just, she was the first person that shared faith with me in a way that was really authentic. And, um, and it, it really changed everything for me. I mean, it's hard to, um, enjoy anything if you feel like your worth depends on it. And I very much tied my worth to how many people were getting clean water or how many miles I was going. And that is not sustainable. And it, at the end of the day, it's fear-based. And so um, it's only through faith that I have been able to go back to endurance. And um, around that time, my my challenge to myself was to not do endurance for one year. And, and that is really around the time that I started learning more about faith. And um, it's, it's, it's really the foundation of my, my, my life now. And um, what makes it so much more liberating is you can do things and know that your worth doesn't change because it, it's rooted in something bigger than anything. So yeah, I, I just, I owe it all to God that I'm able to do this and um, have so much gratitude for my friend for sharing like she did and and helping me see a different way of of living and what are the things that you learned about yourself 
and your faith throughout your career as an athlete? Well, I mean, like, like you said, that if, if you don't have God, something else becomes it. And for me, um, endurance was that, I mean, whatever you put the majority of your time, your energy or focus on is really your version of, of, of that God. And the reason why I was feeling so depleted is because I was assigning God to something that wasn't meant to be God. And so, um, I, I think there's just so much more lightness in pursuit of these things because, um, God's not judging you on abilities that you don't have. And so if you do fail, there's this safety net of knowing that you are just doing the best with what you have and nothing's going to surprise God. So yeah, does that make sense? It does. Yeah. I was actually raised uh, Catholic oh. too. And so faith is also a part of <laughs> part of my life. So I think it's very interesting to hear you talk about it. How, what would you advise listeners or what would you tell listeners about your faith and how they could access faith? Well, there's so much to be said. Let me, let me think for I know. a second. Um, <laughs> sure. Yeah. So what was different about my friend was it wasn't something that was just passed down and it wasn't, and even if it is, it was something that was really authentic and um, she genuinely believed. And so it was just so refreshing to, uh, you know, speak to someone who knows doubts. And so for whatever doubt you have, there is an answer. And um, I mean, I'm very encouraged to know that there's books like A, A Case for Christ, and it talks about a huge doubter gone believer and how if you have doubts, that's that's okay. Just like if you have doubts, if you can run a marathon, if you have doubts in God, that's okay. There's also answers to that. There's also books about that. There's also um, resources about that. There's also truth behind it. And so um, I think doubt can leave, lead to greater faith. And so um, don't be afraid to bring your questions and doubts towards God if you don't believe right now. Um, let's continue to talking about the causes that you support. And I want to finish with that. Out of all the causes in the world, why did you choose the one centered around clean water supply? Well, the great thing about clean water is if you care about education, it's clean water. If you care about women empowerment, it's clean water. If you care about kids, it's clean water. If you care about environment, it's clean water. If you care about poverty alleviation, it's clean water. And so I mean, you could spend lots of money on medicines um, or you can give them clean water. And so what's great about clean water is, you know, you, I've never heard anyone say, no, I don't think people should have clean water. It's a basic human right. And I, I mean, when I found out about the water crisis, I was also living in Australia for school and it was in Melbourne. They were having a 10-year drought. There were rules on when you could um, wash your car, water your lawn. And it was this kind of, oh, wow, this is a problem for some country that's super developed. And then in an environmental science class, one of my professors mentioned 
that like the wars of the future would be on water and in some countries especially in africa there's already wars over water and i was just so mind blown i mean aside from air what is more important than than water and so i i think it's efficient it's effective every one dollar you invest in water brings twelve dollars back to the local economy I mean, I think the thing that makes it so, um, I mean, I, there's so much hope in it is that we could spend millions of dollars for researching things. We don't need to with water. We already have solutions. There already are proven solutions. It is a problem that we can solve when we put people, you know, in airplanes or into space or you know building skyscrapers we're so capable as a humanity and i just think that the clean water cause i don't i mean the, the water crisis it's a crisis but it's a solvable one and um i think it's almost like a metaphor for for the endurance challenges too i mean it seems impossible it seems too big but it's really one person at a time one country at a time and so i uh yeah, I've started doing fundraising for clean water for about a decade now. And so it's been really encouraging to see how many people have, you know, said yes to creating a world where everyone can get clean water. And where, what can people do right now? Right now? To help that uh, cause. So yes. <laughs> if you go to water.katiespots.com, you can donate. And we're currently fundraising for a water project for a school in South Sudan. Um, all 100% goes to H2O for Life, and they're here in the United States, and they help schools all around the world gain access to clean water. Katie Spots, thank you so much for having this conversation and being so honest and frank and open about everything. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me.